Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So yesterday, a Triple Threat held a press conference to formalize the relationship between the city and the local media formalized it in terms of announcing to the city and to the world that the state-run media, of course, will be financed by the state. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to pretend that uh, it's anything other than that. This, it's it's the state-run media. They're there to serve as our comm shop. So the least we can do is compensate them for their dutiful work. Right? That's fair. I will be signing an executive order regarding the share of city advertising dollars that are spent with community media outlets. What? The executive order will not only expand the reach of this important and timely information to residents, but also uh, support journalistic endeavors by increasing the amount of city advertising dollars to these publications by hundreds of thousands of dollars on an annual basis. And the idea for this executive order came out of conversations I had over a year ago uh, with some of the leaders that are joining me here today. And yes, Hermin, you were the one who brought this to our attention. Hermine is Hermine Hartman, who uh, runs Indigo, uh, which is uh, both a outlet as well. And she's got like a TV show that's on once a week on NBC. Uh, I think it comes on after Saturday Night Live. Now, let me say something about this, because it was mostly, if not completely, uh, black-owned media representatives standing with Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. So let me say something about that, because um, per the work I do with my PAC, um, I'm advertising at present with virtually every black-owned media outlet in the city. So I I know, in fact, I just talked to Hermine Hartman to place a final ad buy uh, two days ago. So I know, I've gotten to know at least a little bit, all of these individuals, virtually all these individuals that I know of who have an outlet and they mainly serve the black community in Chicago and the Chicago metro area. And um, without exception, they've been completely professional. I've enjoyed uh, working with them. Uh, They probably don't agree with me. Uh, This also goes for black-owned radio stations like WVON. Uh, where I'm on WGCI. Uh, so this has nothing to do with should does black-owned media, uh, are they worthy of support? Is Are they important outlets in the city? Nothing to do with that. They are. I agree. I'm advertising. I'm spending, right, spending, money. I'm spending PAC money with them to, to get my message out. So that's not the issue. I just want to make that clear. The issue is, of course, how do you formalize a business relationship 
and then act as a check on the people in power. Three, Legitimately one, two. act on, on a check. And, and here's the other thing, too. This goes in both directions. And then what is the expectation from the state side or you know, the city side, state in the generic government sense of the word? What is the expectation? And if you don't toe the line for Lori Lightfoot, particularly in her run for election, oh, no, you could take advertising dollars from whoever. But if you don't toe the party line, if you say something critical, then is there a wink and a nod that that advertising money gets pulled? She say, well, no, we're formalizing it that it's 50 percent. The 50 percent is oh. the minimum. Oh. Do you think she'll be getting, giving any of us any advertising dollars over here at Salem? Here's her, yeah, right. Her, here's her announcement of specifically of the executive order, which I just telegraphed. Chicago is proudly one of the most diverse cities in the world, and it's only right that the city government honors that diversity by supporting local media outlets that our communities rely upon every single day. And with due respect to some of the journalists that are in the seats, these are the folks that are making it happen in the neighborhoods. These are the folks that people are increasingly relying upon, and we have an interest in making sure that hyper-local coverage remains vital in our city, and we do that by putting our money where our mouth is. That's why the executive order is rooted in equity, and it requires that all City of Chicago departments spend at least 50% of their total digital and print advertising budget with community media outlets in Chicago. I mean, we're paying the local media? What in God's name is happening? Well, they would argue, hey, listen. Wow. uh, We spend this. We have these marketing budgets. We're spending money advertising. So it's not like we're creating uh, a new budget line item. We're just redirecting the money we do spend on marketing to particular outlets at particular thresholds. That's what they would argue. But what are they marketing, her as a candidate or the city of Chicago? Because it is an election year. Well, that's a good question. Here's uh, something else that Lightfoot said that uh, is really a tell. This will ensure that city communications and information on programs are accessible to all of our residents, no matter their circumstances. Importantly, it will also serve as an economic boon for many of our local media outlets, many of which haven't received the attention or the funding that they truly deserve, given the service and role that they play in communicating with our residents. Oh, my God. The attention and the funding they deserve, that word again, deserve. Who deserves what? You're a separate entity. You cannot be part of the government. That's what communist countries do. Uh, who deserves oh. what? Right, indeed, the great Milton Friedman question. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Uh, the deserve. They deserve the funding and attention. Golly, um, what kind of what kind of uh, funding and attention do outlets you disagree with deserve? Exactly. None. None. Right. So isn't deserve something that is determined by people voluntarily as opposed to the state by executive order? You know, if you create a community, which media does around your outlet, then you'll be successful. If you don't, then you won't. Deserve. They deserve this level of funding. Says who? Says she. Yeah. 
It's it's a fat. I mean, it's there's something in it for her. This is a this is a, a consequential development, and we've talked about this before. There are efforts at the state level to also provide state funding for local media outlets of their choice, not for the papers with which I'm affiliated, of course, because that's all fake news. If you disagree with the state's position, if you expose the actual impact of their policies, then you're fake news, and well, you, you deserve yeah. to be silenced. If you prop them up, if you promote their orthodoxy, then you deserve to be financed. That's how you want the fourth estate to operate? That's how they're going to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted? I don't think so. The more you listen, the more more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Sometimes maybe you need outside perspective on what's happening inside your community, or in this case, entire state. To drive it home? Uh, well. Maybe you can't. Maybe, you you know, it's like uh, fish in water. You don't realize you're in water. Well, I mean, y- your commercials. Or you don't realize you're drowning. Your commercials okay. say how much worse does it have to get, and it got worse. I'm sick to my stomach. I almost threw up. A seven-year-old boy was washing his hands last night, getting ready to go to bed inside his humble park home. And there was a shootout in the alley behind him, and a stray bullet went through the house Went it through the bathroom, got him in the stomach, and he's dead. That is the, that is how much worse does it have to get? That is every mom's biggest fear. It's disgusting. You're not even safe inside your own home. Just trying to get ready to go to bed. And his family, were they were screaming. It was awful. And it's just, it's, I, I, I don't even know what to do. I mean, I, every, like, everybody should just move out of Chicago or encase your home in bulletproof glass. I mean, what's the answer? Well, um, 298 children have been shot this year, 41 fatally, and he's the 41st, and he's just a cute little seven-year-old boy. Well, the beginning of the answer is change out the leadership that, and, and change out the policies that are imposed on Illinois residents, Illinois families. I mean, it's you, can, you cannot, you cannot... You cannot help people who don't want to be helped. 
I mean, I, the right track, wrong track number in this state is astounding to me. A Almost 50-50, half the population thinks Illinois, which is the worst governed state in American history, is on the right track. Nearly half of the population. This should be like an... 90-10, because it's on the right track only for the 10% of people who are completely insulated from terrible public policy. But instead, the actual fake news that projects out to the truth, that moniker, has convinced nearly half the population that things are hunky-dory. <laughs> Highest unemployment rate, worst bond rating, Highest state and local tax burden. Schools that are circling the drain. Um, and lawlessness in Chicago, like we haven't seen in 30 years, that is radiating out to suburban Cook County and that is soon to radiate out to the Collar Counties and the rest of the state per Pritzker's Purge Law. Yeah, but let's celebrate abortion. because It's November coming up, Dan. I mean, they don't care about life. You think they care about that seven-year-old boy? They care about killing babies. I mean, they're having a press conference at 10 o'clock with Lauren Underwood and, and Delia Ramirez and the Planned Parenthood PAC chair, Jennifer Waltz, for a November. Whoa, let's celebrate killing babies. I'm so excited. Sorry, I'm going to have to miss it. I, I just don't understand. I'd, I'd love to hear the mindset how everything is going well. The, this is a state on the right track. There, there's no objective measure. Leading the nation in out-migration. Second in the nation in college-bound high school seniors going to school out of state. Second highest in-state tuition for state schools, talking about U of I, as compared to his Big Ten colleagues. I mean, what is it that's going so well? I mean, I understand people don't want to get up and dread their life, and you want to be optimistic. But, I mean, can you be optimistic but also realistic? Can you be optimistic and also take a a honest assessment of what you see around you and you think this is the right track that's what's driving all of this this irrational enthusiasm for the disintegration of the state 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line Six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I, I tell you, I got an idea. What? See if people think about it. Uh, let's say Pritzker wins re-election, and the oh. power structure stays the same as it is. Same men and women of always different names, same philosophy, same policy choices. Okay. And the safety act goes into effect Jan one. How about uh, I get together with uh, some of my rich friends? And we do a little bit of a Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott here. We'll wait for, we'll wait outside the, for example, the Will County Jail in Joliet. Okay. And we'll take all of the uh, accused violent offenders that will be released. That's, you know, it's going to be in the hundreds, according to Jim Glasgow. For example, we'll do this everywhere. We'll take them, uh, when they get released, we'll be waiting for them, you know, Blues Brothers style. And we'll uh, drop them off at uh, the Starbucks and the local eateries in downtown Naperville. And we'll give them, you know, 
I don't know, 100, so, 200 bucks in cash yeah, to, uh, go. you know, to go get something to eat and make their way in Naperville. And then we'll do it in Hinsdale and we'll do it in Wilmette and we'll do it in Highland Park in Glencoe and we'll do it in Glen Ellen and we'll do it in all of these enlightened enclaves that have, well, turned the suburban communities over to the new Marxists. What do you think about that? I mean, it's no big deal. Why not? I mean, no. Do it. You have a right to do it. You can do it. You guys have every right to do that. uh, I mean, mean, who would have a problem with that? Would anybody have a problem with that? I mean, that's what they're supporting, these dumb arses who think the safety act. No, no, you've got it wrong. No, that that is great. You you know, you should do a campaign ad showing them coming out of jail, putting them in a van, like maybe a party van. And then driving them down to Naperville and just let them go. Here's some gift cards and go spend it on what you want. Do what you want and just see what yeah. happens. Great social right. experiment. Let's do it. What's the what? I mean, what's I can the arrange the transportation. The, the, those are welcoming communities, as I understand it. So, what's the problem? Daquan Bruce, uh, this outside perspective I was referencing. Daquan Bruce is the executive director of Concerned Communities for America, not Chicagoan. He uh, posted an op-ed in RealClearPolitics.com that has a perspective, uh, you know, has a different angle to the same place with respect to Pritzker's Purge Law. He writes, uh, in pertinent part, our communities deserve better than this. The country is, is currently experiencing a crime wave of historic proportions characterized by an explosion of violent crime that is primarily affecting urban areas. The victims of these crimes are disproportionately black and brown Americans, which means the so-called Safety Act is directly endangering communities of color. That's not what the politicians say, though. They say they're protecting us from the criminal justice system, which is not only a scathing indictment of a system they themselves control, but also an insult to all law-abiding citizens. What a great sentence there. They're protecting us from the criminal justice system, which is an indictment of the system they control... And an insult to the law-abiding. Exactly right. Uh, Then, to make matters worse, they're telling us that because they feel sort of remorseful that the criminal justice system is biased against black and brown folks, they're going to release people they believe are violent criminals into our communities. Thank you. We do not deserve to be forced to live with potentially dangerous criminals in our midst. With the politicians who voted for the Safety Act want to accuse murderers wandering the streets of their subdivisions and gated communities? Of course not. But since those criminals will be concentrated in inner cities where our communities are located, they can pretend to be social justice warriors while sleeping easy in their beds at night while we lie awake worrying because our children aren't safe. The Safety Act is the ultimate example of how politics as usual fails communities of color. Politicians could take action that would actually make a positive difference in our communities, but it's cheaper and easier to pass laws like the Safety Act and pawn the problems off on us instead. Talk about a guy who just stuck the landing. Excellent piece by Daquan Bruce. Nails it. Well, maybe I can help. I can help uh, solve Daquan Bruce's problem. I can't force people to turn out politicians like Pritzker, but I can facilitate uh, bringing those who will be released out of their communities and into communities that are more welcoming, that see no problem with this, that don't see what Taquan Bruce is talking about. Okay, no problem. Corey and Woodlawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer.
morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, we're talking about 50% of the state's population. They're just not paying attention. I talk to these guys every day. They're unaware of what these politicians are actually doing. They're saying one thing, and they're doing exactly the opposite. And I did want to make this quote uh, that uh, uh, Frederick Bastiat said, government is that great invention where people think that they can live at the expense of other people. That's our biggest problem. Yeah, that's Thank right. Very good, Corey. Nice Bastiat quote. Love it. Uh, Joe Hoffman Estates. Hey, good morning. There's so many government hacks in this uh, state. I could almost see it being 50% at this point. I was talking to some people at uh, over the last few days who think Pritzker's doing a good job. Uh, I mean, how could they not? They're getting these big, fat pensions. Um, and um, the one guy told me he's a professor. The other guy's sitting on the side of the road in an orange truck at 40 bucks an hour. So, yeah, they love them. They want more. That's what I. That's my opinion. Us working stiffs out here, we don't stand a chance. Thanks for the call, Joe. Uh-huh. Are, are those men? Are those real men? They don't care about the safety of their wives and children, okay? Or the education of their wives or their children, I should say. John Naperville. Yeah, you know, I feel you guys frustrate them. Consultants, everything from businesses of medical to financial. And the biggest problem that you have is that you can show somebody a glaring problem in their business, but as long as they make payroll and they can live a certain lifestyle, they don't care. They don't want to hear it. This is the devil that they know. So they're not going to change. And, you know, I think it was Voltaire that said it best. Once the democracy, once the people figure out they can vote themselves money, a democracy is dead. And Illinois is there, buddy. Yeah. Thanks for the call, John. I think it was de Tocqueville talking about people bribing themselves with their own money. But uh, your point is well taken. Uh, David Winnetka. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I was having a uh, an argument with a uh, uh, lefty last night, a little Facebook group. that I don't even know why I do it anymore. I just don't even know why. But anyways, he's claiming that uh, crime hasn't gotten any worse uh, <laughs> now was under Trump. And I said, I'll tell you what, man, you mm-hmm. get on the – I go, it's because you're living in Lake Forest. I said, go down to uh, – jump on the Wilmette Purple Line, take that down, get off at Howard. Take that over to Wilson, jump on the red line, and take that to 95th and make that return trip back and tell me then. It's unbelievable. Well, wait, wait, I, you know, there's, there's, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a, another, another problem with that statement that the, this friend or colleague of yours made. What does Trump have to do with crime in Chicago and Illinois? Nothing. If anything, it, he tried to help it with the Department of Justice and bringing more feds here to get you know guns off the streets hey, what, what, what is it that is he's from lake forest what is it that you don't understand about public safety being a state and local issue you, you live in lake forest why do you live there why don't you live on the west side why don't you live on the south side because the experience in lake forest is a lot different than the west or the south side is that because of biden or trump or any president you fracking moron or is it Absolutely because true. You know, I mean, I mean, God, good God. And check this one out. I, uh, so I drive for a living, and I picked up a gentleman from uh, Waukegan. His buddy's a cop. Uh, he said, you know, 25% of the stuff that's getting reported, that's it. He's like 75% of the murders and everything else going on in Waukegan alone, you know, we don't know about. And uh, make the news. Waukegan's right next door. Yeah, th- thanks for the call, Dave. Yeah, tell your friend from Lake Forest, why don't you go live in Waukegan? Or North Chicago. And then when your life experience changes dramatically— or, like I said, the west or south side of Chicago. And when your life experience changes dramatically, are you going to blame Biden? I mean, the level of psychosis in this state is just unparalleled. Certainly right there with California.
the level of head up arse is just astounding. George and Montgomery. Good morning. Morning. Uh, yeah, I, I was saying I think that uh, I think you ought to take the prisoners and bring them to a Pritzker hotel and explain to them they don't have to leave. They could just squat there under his control. Yeah, thanks for the call, George. I mean the 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 the, the Hilton. I mean the Hyatt hotels. Um, they don't want yeah. anything to do with them, right? I mean, he doesn't. No, not really. I mean, he's just been the beneficiary. That's you know that. If he needs a room, <laughs> those hotels paid for that silver ladle in his mouth. Um, yeah, but um, no, I'm 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 contemplating this idea. I'm contemplating this idea of um, delivering delivering people who are starting in. The collar counties, and people say, "Well, well, Dan, that that's not fair." I live in Hinsdale or Naperville, and I don't agree with these people. Yeah, I know. Too bad. It's, Sorry, it's tough. I was so it's sad. Of, too bad, as you say, Dan. It's sort of like um, you know Greg Abbott shipping uh, migrants from the border to Chicago. I don't believe in the sanctuary city, but hey, I'm in Chicago, so you know, uh, you sink or swim together, I suppose. And guess what we're doing, Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. And politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, that theme music, the arrogance and ignorance part, is when politics infects sports. When sports follows dysfunctional culture. Sports is at its best when it's ahead of culture. From its basis, which is in what? Performance. So sports is at its best when it's Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947. Decade and a half before the Civil Rights Act is signed. Sports is at its best when it's Don Haskins' Texas Western team beating Kentucky for the national championship 
again, 1966, uh, while you still had politicians standing at schoolhouse doors trying to prevent integration. That's when sports is at its best. When sports is at its worst is what sports is where sports is today, where it is complicit with the identitarian politics of the left. And so this Associated Press story out yesterday in advance of the uh, series, but the World Series between the Phillies and the Astros. Looking around Memorial Stadium before Game 1 of 1980, the 1983 World Series, Phillies star Gary Matthews, Sarge, saw a lot of black talent. Joe Morgan, Eddie Murray, Gary Maddox, Ken Singleton, Al Bunbury, Disco Dan Ford, plenty more that night in Baltimore. There were quite a few of us recalled Matthews. When fans watch the Houston Astros and Phillies line up this week to begin the Fall Classic, it will be a much different picture. For the first time since 1950, shortly after Jackie Robinson broke the Major League color barrier, there are projected to be no U.S.-born black players in this World Series. Zero. And they go on to get all of the the AP. It's the AP. They go on to get all the hand-wringing from diversity officers and some former players about the dearth of black, U.S.-born black players in the league. Obviously, there's a lot of Latin American, South American um, uh, players and players who identify as persons of color, but they're not U.S.-born black. Um. I mean, not identify our persons of color. But anyway, the point is, is that a problem? Three, does one, this, two. Oh. And, and does this indicate what it must indicate? That despite the Major League Baseball's courageous moving of the All-Star game from the state of Georgia oh, because of uh, the efforts of Republicans to suppress the black vote, that's what I understand from Stacey Abrams, despite Major League Baseball's heroic leadership, Major League Baseball is still hopelessly systemically racist right there's no other explanation when you have a population that doesn't reflect the general population it's less than the general population when it's when you're talking about minorities there's no explanation that is acceptable other than systemic racism so only seven percent of major league baseball players are u.s born black men and of course that doesn't wash. Systemically racist? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You could also reach us out on our text line, six four six three six, type in DA, then a quick comment. What do you, what should they do, Dan? Should they cancel the the World Series? Just end it now? Well, I mean, if we were talking, if if, if, we're, if this was an Ivy League university, they would just cut some of the white players and, I don't know, pull some black people out of the stands and put them in uniform or pull some black players from the minor leagues and put them in uniform because it has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with putting the best team on the field. It has to do with fulfilling identitarian quotas. Right? Isn't that what we're told? Do I have that wrong? Sports is great because it's the last meritocracy, except that is increasingly imperiled by identitarian politics, isn't it? You have to give Colin Kaepernick a tryout because he threw a temper tantrum over police and race and you know other racial issues because he's a big demagogue that's been amplified by 
by the media and and, and shamelessly he didn't even show up at the right place, and then he was a half hour late. Shamelessly, interestingly, too, Colin Kaepernick, uh, shamelessly promoted by Phil Knight and Nike. Phil Knight, all of a sudden, finally mugged by reality there in his uh, beloved state of Oregon. Phil Knight really? getting involved for the Republican candidate what? in the governor's race in Oregon. He can't take the Democrats anymore and what they've done to his fair state of Oregon. Well, oh, he oh, created welcome. that disaster that he lives in, so too bad. Well, welcome to the party, Phil Knight. Here's something else uh, about baseball. So, uh, obviously, it's not because baseball is systemically racist or there's not opportunities to play baseball. No, this is an anomaly this year. That it's it's so not an anomaly because the participation of U.S.-born black players, their representation in Major League Baseball has been declining since the 80s. It's oh. not an anomaly. There's something else going on, so what is it? The AP doesn't explore that because that could be uncomfortable. Okay, Why are fewer that? black kids choosing to play baseball? It's not because the, the talent we see on basketball courts couldn't be talent we see on baseball fields. So there's something else going on. What is it? I don't know. I have an idea, but I'll wait. Oh, by the way, the NHL is in the act, too. The NHL uh, recently released their expansive dive into oh, that's right. the distribution of uh, of representation in their the ranks of their players as well as their executives. It turns out that um, about 85% of the NHL is white. Boy, that's a revelation. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to force uh, black kids to play hockey? Are you going to force them to live in Saskatchewan? I mean, what is is there is there any consideration that there may be some self-selection going on, or that the choices that are being made about sports to pursue by by families and by kids has something to do with maybe I'll give you a hint maybe the family structure, the opportunities maybe have something to do with the family structure. Hockey's an expensive sport. Golf is an expensive sport. Yeah, tennis is expensive. Tennis is an expensive sport. Baseball is not so much an expensive sport, but there is a dynamic to baseball that's different than, say, football and certainly basketball. What is it? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And Gary Matthews, he said it's kids are shifting to other sports. Mm, I'm not buying right. that. I mean, yeah, well, they, they, they cle- I mean, well, they clearly are. How else do you explain the decline in uh, U.S.-born black players in Major League Baseball? The, the black kids growing up today don't have the athletic talent that the black kids growing up a generation or two or three generations ago had? I don't think so. I mean, they don't maybe not. They don't, not everybody is Major League or professional talent, I understand. But, but if, if you had the same participation, would you be developing the next Gary Matthews's and Joe Morgan's and Eddie Murray's and so forth. I think you would. So there's something else going on. And by the way, on the NHL, ESPN, uh, because the sports media is part of the problem here because they're, as I've said for eons, they're just an adjunct of the D.C. press corps. They're a bunch of mediocre intellects uh, that want to be taken seriously as journalists, so they just mimic what they see from the political press corps. And so this ESPN statement in their report on the NHL diversity report. The report found that uh, 61.86% of workers around the NHL 
identify as men with 36% identifying as women. Really, are they men or are they not? Are they women or are they not? Yeah, I'll tell you, we could solve this diversity problem. Just just ha- count them off. Every, have everybody line up and just say, okay, woman, 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 man, 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 woman. Wo-. You, just, you just impose an identity so that you can meet your quotas. How about that? 61% of workers identify as men. 36% identify as women in the NHL. That's how ESPN reports it. You want to destroy sports? Keep going this way. And then introduce you know women into men's sports too and men into women's sports while you're at it. Since any, everybody just identifies as they identify. Uh, Mike in the villages, like in Orlando? Like in an hour away from Orlando. That's correct, Dan. All right. Hey, Mike. All right. Um, you know, I was enjoying the uh, Field of Dreams game between the White Sox and the Yankees. And I went absolutely nuts after the game was over. A-Rod, talking about it, said, isn't it great that five black ball players hit home runs tonight? I mean, just crazy. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I don't remember that. Uh, it the was post-game after, interview? It was after the game. Yeah. It was the post-game. It was the post-game show. And he had to make the comment that five black players hit home runs. What did it's... that have to do with the game? Exactly. I, I missed that one. That's great. Thanks for that, Mike. Yeah. Wonderful. That's what I said. You fall in line. You follow this identitarian culture, and you follow it right over the edge. And that's what professional sports is doing, unfortunately. Phil and Darian. Hey, Dan and Annie. Good morning. Listen, this whole term, people of color, has to come to an end, okay? Uh us white people, we are a color. I mean, we're not translucent. We're not clear. We are color. I mean, this whole thing that they own, person of color. I'm out of the skin. Am I a person of color or am I a white man? I don't know. This whole thing, just call it like it is. Black, brown, or white. Person of color is a farce. Have a nice day. Thank you, human being Phil from Darien. Uh, Rich, Indian Head Park. Yes, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. What I don't understand is I don't uh, hear anybody complaining about all of the uh, black players in football and uh, basketball. Why is it when there's not black players in other sports, all of a sudden we have a problem with race? It's a matter of competing in the sport. If you're good enough, you'll you'll get a spot on the team. If you're not, uh, then that's just the way it is. I don't understand why they keep bringing race into it. Yeah, thanks for the call. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, we've often said, you know, uh, make uh, the NBA representative of the, the the players in the NBA. They have to be representative of the percentage of white people in America. Well, well even fewer people would watch the NBA than do now um, because the product would be diminished because you're not basing it on performance. But that only works in one direction. Does it? I don't think so. Something else, though. Thinking about this, not at the professional level, but at the foundational level. So Little League, in the case Mm -hmm. of baseball. What do you need to field Little League teams to develop, to, to put together Little League leagues? What do you need? Players. (laughs) 
Well, in addition to the kids. Yeah, and the coach. Remember, they're kids. Right. Well, you need their parents' consent. Don't you need dad's involvement? Don't you need the involvement of dads to make these little leagues run? Oh, yeah. Well, what do you mean? Well, yeah, like that's a given. Is it a given? Oh, I see what you're saying. Where's Jackie Robinson West? Where's Jackie Robinson West? The team that made uh, the headlines just a few years ago. You know that team doesn't exist anymore? Why? Don't have good players? Don't have kids uh, in Chicago that can play baseball? Black kids? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think that's the problem. So what's the problem? Is it obvious where I'm getting at? Yeah. There's a lack of parental environment, lack of dads. It's a, it's a, it's a bigger deal. Football, you know, you can have a few coaches that uh, lord over seventy-five kids. Doesn't work the same, and and you know, for basketball, you can have you know one, maybe two coaches for twelve, fifteen kids. In baseball, you need more parental involvement because there are more practices and there are more games. And you need that, yeah, because they have to take. You can't drive yourself. The parents have to take you. And parents normally stay for the games, and sometimes they last for hours. <laughs> sometimes they're over quicker, but it's a big commitment, a huge commitment. And, and, I, and I, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to believe that men and women are equally interested in sports, and men and women are equally interested in coaching boys baseball and basketball and football, but that's just not true. I know I'm supposed to believe that, but it's not true. It's not true. Um, and so, so if you don't have dad's participation, then you don't have youth sports. And I think the impact is most severe in a sport like baseball. That's a hypothesis. I don't have data to support it. Just an observation. Get people's reaction to it. Marty in Naperville. Good morning. Three quick things. Number one, the reason kids don't play baseball anymore, and I don't care if they're black, white, green, or blue, none of them dopes even know how to put a baseball cap on. Look at them. Uh, Number two, the worst thing that ever happened to baseball was that stupid baseball movie. This involves dads where the guy said to his son or whatever, have a catch. If I would have said to my dad, let's go have a catch, my dad would have said, how about you have a slap in the side of the head? It's called let's go play catch. So that's another thing. And Marty, three, Marty from Naperville, you're, you're, was... you're, 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 wow. you're dissing field of, field of Dreams? Really? Yes, I am. Yes. Let's go have a oh. catch. Nobody in the world has ever said uh-huh. that. They say and that in Iowa. They say, Thanks right. for the call, Mark. They I mean, said it I back can't... in the day, decades. Hey, Dad. 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 You want to have a catch? I'd like that. What man is not crying right now? Please. Damn you, Ray Kinsella. <laughs> you did it again. Um, yeah, he had a catch with uh. his dad. Hmm. Mike in Union. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, so maybe there needs to be a, a Senate committee hearing on the uh, on the uh, coach. Uh, we're not getting uh, American blacks on the field. Oh, wait a minute. It's Dusty Baker. It, does he qualify as being black on that? And then to your point of uh, in parental involvement, you're absolutely right, Dan. People just want to drop their kids off and let somebody else teach them and coach them and everything else. That, that's the problem. It's, it's not even just... 
it's just involvement, period. They're too busy with their own lives to invest in their own kids, and um, it's, it's sad. Thanks for the call. It's- Appreciate it, Mike. Tony Southside. Hey, what's up, Dan Amy, my lemmy lamb? So I have anecdotal evidence to prove my theory. The reason why there's not enough of black youths playing Major League Baseball, even going into baseball, is because you need to go into a park, right? What's wrong with the parks in Chicago, the major cities? You go to the park, you get shot, you get dead. Don't get dead. That's all I got to say. Uh, uh, that's, that's not there bad, There was a shooting, Tony. remember, at that Little League game? All the shots fired, everyone got down, and then they resumed play. The safety issue in Chicago is certainly an issue, but that doesn't explain it writ large across the nation, although in a lot of urban areas where you have a disproportionate uh, concentration of black families, that, that is true. That is true. So that's I, I would stipulate to that as a contributing factor. Although, you know, you go play pickup basketball in the parks too. That's dangerous too now. Can't go anywhere. It's dangerous. Well, everything's dangerous in Chicago. Gosh, Dusty Baker is seventy-three years old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Frank Arlington this Heights. This is the time, Dan. Baseball. Yeah. Been to mark, there to mark time throughout history. I don't remember the line. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, and that's that. I gotta. Line? I gotta say, I love your impersonations, but I don't think that was very close to James Earl. Yeah. Jones. No, that it didn't. No. You're right. No. But um, anyway, I wanted to call just complain about baseball <clears throat> as a whole. Um. You know, this is the first time since 1977 that I did not watch a Cubs game. You can't watch them on the MLB Network because of blackouts. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm not going to pay for their little app, which is not going to happen. Um, it's insane, the price to go to a Cubs game. Um, my family says season tickets forever, but you go there, you want to go buy Coke, beer, hot dog, it's like 25 30 bucks. It is so insane how much money these guys make. They don't show it on the regular channels. They don't build the fan base. They don't care about their fans. There's no complete games anymore. I mean, what were there, 60 complete games the whole year today? This, this year, maybe, what, 12 shutouts? It's pathetic. Who wants to watch this stuff? Is, is their, their playoffs well, stink? Phillies, the sixth seed? They, what, they win 87 games in the World Series? Why even play the, why even play the whole season? This, this, well, why, why play 162 games? There, I am disgusted by baseball. Well, I really well, am. Cheering, Dusty anti- Baker. Trust Monopoly? Um, well, I, I mean, he, Baker. I mean, he's well, a great well, manager. He goes to the playoffs with five teams, but he's the know, oldest I'm World sorry. Series manager ever. He passed Jack McKinnon, who was seventy-two. McKeon. McKeon. Yeah. McKeon uh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I love uh, Jack McKeon. He was so sweet to me. No, you should pronounce got his a, name right if well, you love him so much. I need pet God You're rest his soul. Yes, I am. Yeah. So that means I truly love him. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Frank. I mean, the whole like the wild card team making the World Series. I mean, that happens in all sports, and there are fewer teams that make the playoffs in baseball as compared to the other professional sports. So that doesn't bother me. But, I mean, the, the whole, like, these players make too much, who's watching this? Well, obviously a lot of people are because some team's not going to pay Aaron Judge probably a billion dollars because nobody's watching. So people are watching. These teams make money. Um, I mean, I'm not disputing that. It's more a conversation about what's happening at the local level, at the, at the youth level, and how does that manifest itself then at the professional level so that we can disabuse people of the, this notion that um, there's some – existential crisis in black youth playing sports well there's an existential crisis the the real existential crisis is the black family oh and by the way the latino family and the white family uh not far behind in terms of the the extent of the crises within those communities as well as you see family disintegration and then community disintegration and then you wonder why it it presents itself in sports and all these other 
cultural and civic institutions as well. Of course it is. Of course they're all interconnected. Of course there's root causes that that all redound back to family and community. And that's what, uh, you know, the D.C. press corps and the rest of these identitarians don't want to address. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Bono, the frontman for U2, that Bono, has a, a new memoir out, Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. You know, uh, Amy, I sat next to Bono at uh, the Park Hyatt for lunch one time. And did he? Did you two talk at all, or you were just sitting next to him? I said, hey, take off the sunglasses, you're inside. What's your problem? <laughs> no, I didn't say Did anything. you t- exchange any words? No, I'm not any a pleasantries? fan pleasantries? Well, he was eating lunch, I don't know, with his agent or something, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, it was fine. Okay. I'm not a fanboy. I don't go up to people. I don't, you know. Ask them for their autographs. I would, maybe if it was like. Uh, who? who would implore you or just, I mean, if I, if I had sat, you, I if I had sat next to Johnny Cash at lunch, I would have asked for his autograph. Okay. I mean, I like Bono. I like you too. But, eh, I mean, it's just, eh, I'm not, I'm not starstruck like that. Maybe if it was. Um, who hmm, else? Trying to, th- I mean. I've caddied for Jordan, so it wouldn't be Jordan. But otherwise, it would have been. But I already caddied for him, so right, I may have so mentioned. Have I may, if if Michael was there, I would say, "Hey, I caddied for your Chicago oh. Golf when, uh, you know, forty years ago." I'm sure oh, you remember if, it like I do. If Michael was there, okay. Yeah, well, You're I would. I would. I would say something to him because of the connection that we share. The time I caddied for him, uh, one time. Yeah, decades time. ago when you caddied for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure he remembers it fondly, like I do. Well, Jack McKeon, he was so sweet because I was pregnant, and I walked into the dugout, and he said, "Oh, oh, wait, let me put this out. This may harm your baby." And he was so sweet, and we chatted for a while, went over baby names, and yeah. Are you trying to one up me with I'm Michael so tr- with Jack McKeon? <laughs> well, we were just talking. Are you about trying to bigfoot baseball? me with Jack McKeon? <laughs> Come on. Totally. <laughs> uh, all right. So Bono uh, gave an interview in yes. the New York Times about uh, his memoir and his activism, uh-huh. and he's done it again, stepped on that third rail. He, re- he uh, said in this New York Times interview, I ended up as an activist in a very different place from where I started. I thought that if we just redistributed resources, then we could solve every problem. I now know that's not true. There's a funny moment when you realize that as an activist. The off-ramp out of extreme poverty is UG commerce. It's entrepreneurial capitalism. He went on to say, I didn't grow up to like the idea that we've made heroes out of business people, but if you're bringing jobs to a community and treating people well, then you are a hero. Oh, boy. Uh, I can I can hear Bono's memoir being pulled from Amazon right now as we're speaking. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's spoken fondly about capitalism as the means to lifting people out of poverty before. Yeah. But he, but he's doing it again, and the environment's become increasingly hostile. It'll be interesting to see the reaction he draws. For more on the economics of envy, which is sort of indirectly what Bono is addressing, pleased to be joined by somebody else. If I sat next to him at lunch, I would you say would... something, because we've had him on the show so many times. I've read so much, so much of his work, right. and enjoy it so much. I would. 
He is Theodore Dalrymple, contributing editor of City Journal. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of many, many books, including Life at the Bottom, Romancing Opiates, Pharmacological Lies, and the Addiction Bureaucracy. He's a retired prison psychiatrist and uh, a wonderful chap. Theodore Dalrymple, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. Uh, how about uh, Bono's statements about entrepreneurial capitalism, not in the sense of sort of generically creating the more, most wealth, but essentially going to the moral argument that it's the best way, imperfect as it is, the best way to organize society because it provides the opportunity to, among other things, lift people out of extreme poverty? Well, all I would say is uh, he doesn't seem to have been a very quick learner. Um, it's taken him a long time to reach this not very difficult conclusion. Uh, that's true, although he's a, you know, he's a faster learner than many of our elites in the upper reaches of power in the West, isn't he? Well, yes, they, they don't learn ever. But uh, <laughs> yeah, still, right. I mean, uh, these, <laughs> these thoughts uh, were pretty obvious uh, at the time he started out. Um, so, uh, yes, it's better that he should have these thoughts now than, than that he shouldn't have them at all. But it would have been better if he hadn't started out uh, with such, uh, such uh, foolish uh, but commonplace ideas. Well, I mean, so, so you're, uh, you have insight into the human mind. So these, uh, and you write about this recently at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research, The Economics of Envy, your piece. You know, these are, uh, we're talking about uh, well-educated, perhaps over-educated in a sense, people that have positions of power in in private industry as well as government, and uh, they can't seem to connect the dots to policy choices and policy consequences. Why? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it, of course, is their, um, their uh, personal interest. I mean, uh, there's a great deal of... Uh, power and money to be made in stimulating envy uh, and uh, uh, because of course their their uh, their positions of power uh, depend on it and they but there is also the fact that one one feels more generous uh, minded if one talks about uh, redistribution taking from some and giving to others and of course there is the added pleasure of uh, causing displeasure uh, to others in doing so. I mean, one must never underestimate the joy of making other people miserable. You know, the economics of envy, we always talk about it in the context of sort of like rich versus poor and then the yeah. guilt complex that you're talking about. But, you know, part of it, I wonder if it's these um, uh, hyper-educated people, particularly in the public sector, who look at uh, an entrepreneur who maybe he's a steel fabricator and he built a business from scratch into a business that employs 500 people and, you know, throws off $50 million in sale and he does well for himself and he's got a, a vacation home and he's got a boat because of his industriousness and uh, his ability to bring people together to add value to larger society. And you know what? They just have no idea how to do that, but they're smarter because they went to Harvard and they got an advanced degree. And how can some uh, undereducated guy be more wealthy, have more toys than I have? Yeah, the, uh, uh, but the, uh, there's also uh, uh, the fact that 
irrespective of the character of your entrepreneur, let us suppose he's not a very nice man. Let us suppose he's a horrible man. Um, And that, of course, is perfectly possible. Nevertheless, he is doing uh, good uh, by creating employment. So he does good, whether whatever his personal qualities, uh, whether he's a, a decent man or a, or an unpleasant man. Now, for intellectuals, the idea that someone can do good without intending to go, do good, uh, in fact, he may be uh, someone might be entirely selfishly motivated, but he would nevertheless be doing good. That that's almost intolerable because it goes against uh, the need for intellectuals in the first place. And it doesn't matter if they intend to do good and do bad. They're still superior to the guy who doesn't intend to do good but does it anyway. Of course, of course, (laughs) because uh, being well-intentioned, I mean, it's the intentions that count for them, not the actual effect. And we can see this on a very large scale. I mean, you see it in uh, foreign uh, foreign aid. It doesn't matter that foreign aid actually often does a great deal of harm. The fact that it's intended to do good uh, to very poor people is what counts. The actual effect is very unimportant by comparison. So, um, uh, you know, is this just endemic to the human condition? And I don't mean that this, this mentality exists. I mean that this mentality dominates in terms of driving uh, how society is organized. Do you think this is endemic? This is just where free societies trend? Or if we were able to recalibrate how we do K-12 through education, for example, that we could, um, we could marginalize this mentality? Well, no doubt it's always a, a temptation of people uh, to, uh, to be envious in that fashion. I don't know whether you personally ever experienced envy of that kind. Uh, I think most people probably have um, experienced such envy. Uh, that, I think, is absolutely uh, natural. Um, and in that sense, it can't be controlled. But it can be controlled by, by thought, by taking thought. And if it can be controlled by taking thought, then uh, educating people properly uh, would help them to 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 control their thoughts. Maybe and it may- control their envy. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, there's a reason envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Maybe that that should be a thought experiment. Yes, I, I, it's a it's a permanent uh, possibility of uh, of mankind, and uh, and you will never. Uh, eliminate it uh, entirely, and it's very tempting, and uh, it encourages all kinds of, you know, to do harm while believing that you're doing good. That is a delightful thing uh, for many people, and therefore you have to control it uh, uh, by conscious thought. I, I, as I said, I don't know whether you've ever suffered from envy, uh, but uh, I, I don't think I'm a particularly envious person. I wouldn't like to uh, go to the pearly gates and claim that I had never experienced any envy. No, I, I mean, that, right, we're all sinners and we're all susceptible to seven deadly sins, and we've and most of us has, have committed at least several of them, myself included, at some point in time. Um, I go, go through this hypothetical that you offer in your piece on the economics of envy on infant mortality to sort of illustrate the point of the silliness of the position? Well, yes. I I mean, this is a a thought experiment, but it's not that different from reality. Supposing you look at infant mortality rates between uh, in the richest 
group of people and the poorest group of people. Let us suppose that they're double, that uh, it's three per thousand in the richest and six per thousand. I should say that infant mortality is the rate of uh, death in the first year of life uh, from a, 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 a thousand uh, children born alive, babies born alive. So let's suppose it's six in the poorest and three in the in the um, in the uh, richest, and in fact, in Britain, for example, the rate is double in the richer uh, in the poorest group by comparison with the richest group. Let us take the figure six and three. Supposing we could reduce it to five and two. In other words, it's improved both for the poorest and the richest. Nevertheless, that could be presented as an increase in the difference between the rich and the poor, because whereas before it was only twice as high in the, uh, in the uh, poorest group, it is now two and a half times as high. And therefore, it could be, and often is, presented as a deterioration. Although, in fact, uh, uh, in, uh, in practice, uh, children have been saved in both groups. Right, and so, that, so then the, what, what would you have us do? Let children in one group die to eat, level the playing field? I mean, that, this is essentially... Well, that, the, that is a point. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the absurdity. That is yeah. a possibility. Right. I, uh, another example of this is I, I was in a... a um, uh, conference, a wim the women's conference in uh, Peking in back in the early 90s, I can't remember the exact date, and there was a British minister who was talking the, the usual equality talk, saying that she wanted to make sure that in health all, um, all uh, measures were equal between men and women. And I stood up afterwards, there were any, she asked for questions, and I said, does this mean that uh, men should live longer or women should live shorter? <laughs> right, and what was her answer? Well, the answer, what happened was, because, of course, the civil servants knew that uh, their master was an idiot, uh, they, <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, or mistress it was, uh, came forward and said, that is not a question. <laughs> and went on to the next question. <laughs> the, the, the redefinition was happening a, a long time before the 21st century. Yes, uh, we've redefined the question into being a, a statement to be dismissed, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, the we've we've literally had this, by the way, in the U.S. We had a, a candidate for a governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, on inflation. You know, the problem we're having with inflation is the kids. If you didn't have the kids, you wouldn't have inflation. You wouldn't be worrying about uh, the prices at the grocery stores and stuff. So, I mean, it's a simple solution, like the final solution. Yes, well, there is always that kind of solution. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's absurd. But the thing about uh, what happens with statements like this is that they are intended to give warm, fuzzy feelings without anybody thinking about their corollaries or what they really mean. So, yeah, they, yeah. It, yeah. so it, it's the, the connotation of the words rather than what they actually mean that is important. So, I mean, some perspective on this. I mean, do you think that um, maybe in part because of the deterioration of education in the West that people are more susceptible to beautiful lies, more unwilling to confront 
uh, unacceptable truths, uh, more... Well, I believe in the supply side of these uh, lies, that uh, there are more weak people willing uh, to promote them rather than more people people being susceptible to them and in part that comes of course from uh, from uh, shall we say uh, the increase in the numbers of people who've undergone tertiary education he is Theodore Dalrymple contributing editor of City Journal senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute author of many books including Life at the Bottom and Romancing Opiates Pharmaco- Pharmacological Lies and the Addiction Bureaucracy and I am envious I will admit I'm envious of your British accent I wish I I wish I had a British accent. I, I, I can't really help it. Yeah, I know. I, I understand. And you can work on it, Dan. I, I could, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to go watch uh, The Trip again with Steve Coogan. Uh, all right, Theodore Dalrymple, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is a covidian and she treats covid policy with religious fervor she literally did so when she was promoting vaccines earlier than this this year and vax mandates and now of course we're in this place where you've got a new york court that overturned the termination of public sector employees who were terminated for failing to comply with the vax mandate because as the court held uh it you could get the vaccine and you could still get COVID. So yep. it was not about it was not a, a public health issue about prevention. It was about compliance. And that's not how it was presented. So those people are being reinstated with back pay. But that has Kathy Hochul apparently doubling down where she can. And that's in the schools. Yeah, because RSV cases are on the rise, not only in New York, but in a number of states and places across America. So she said yesterday that parents should reconsider masking their children again, you know, to protect kids. It's hard to keep kids safe. You know, think about the fact that a year ago, you know, before a year ago, a lot of kids were wearing masks in a daycare center or in schools, and that did give them some level of protection. We're not mandating this, but we're saying parents, you know, you got other kids, you got kids in school, preschool, and you got a baby at home, you really might just want to take these extra precautions. And by now, kids are more socialized to the idea of wearing a mask. It's not as strange to them. It's not as like... What is this all about? There's really cute masks out there. I've seen a lot of them. Uh, So that's something I'm encouraging all parents to consider for their children right now. Yeah, it's the new normal of uh, kids wearing cute masks. It's funny. I remember that Yale study from way back that uh, looked specifically at daycare centers, found no evidence that masks helped prevent transmission. They looked at something like 65,000 daycare centers. But okay, sure. Um, And, of course, this is the typical uh, tunnel vision of the COVIDian where they look at only what they suggest are potential benefits and they don't address anything in terms of trade-offs, potential costs, the socialization uh, that is retarded uh, because kids can't see other kids' faces and start to right. uh, identify facial expressions as part of the means of communication. But just on the mass thing, since you brought it up, thank you for bringing it up, Governor. I do want to remind, because I assume that this will be promoted, if not mandated, uh, by 
others like Kathy Hochul, who believe what she believes. You know, there was this interesting study that didn't get a lot of play over the summer in July that was released by uh, Tracy Hoog, who is a medical doctor and Ph.D. in epidemiology, and Naraj Sood, who is a professor at USC's Price School of Public Policy with joint appointments at the USC Keck School of Medicine and the USC Marshall School of Business. And I, I give the credentials because I know that uh, skeptics of anything, skeptics of skeptics of the CDC and politicians like Kathy Hochul just suggest that we're not interested in science and data, and that's not the case. Well, so this study they looked at, or this study they did, I should say, what they looked at. Uh, here's the explanation of the methodology and goals of the study they did. School districts across the nation have implemented mask mandates for children in the hope of reducing COVID-19 transmission. But the impact of school-based mask mandates on COVID-19 transmission in children is not fully established. While observational studies of school mask mandates have had conflicting results, randomized studies have failed to detect an impact of masking on participants under 50 years of age. Here we report the results of a natural experiment. Listen to what they did. It's very interesting. Natural experiment in two large K-12 school districts in Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo Public Schools, FPS, and West Fargo Public Schools. To estimate the association between school mask mandates and COVID-19 infections, our study population is unique because the districts are adjacent to each other in the same county, okay. have similar student demographics, COVID-19 mitigation policies, and staff vaccination rates. At the start of the fall 2021 semester, one school district mandated masks and the other school district did not. And the data found that there was virtually no difference in the incidence of transmission in the school district that had the mask mandate versus the school district that did not. Or men skeptics will argue, well, they weren't wearing, wearing their masks properly because that's what kids do. Right. So kids in one school district were just not wearing their masks yeah, properly. properly. Yeah. Right. And but yes. I but if it's so important, then you would think that the adults would be ensuring that they were wearing their masks properly. Well, anyway, um, I know there's conflicting studies as these researchers point out. But this was an interesting natural experiment that they did combined with the randomized uh, experiments that they describe as not reaching conclusion in terms of positive impact for people under the age of 50. Yeah. I mean, just something to consider if you want to and if you want to dismiss it and uh, just uh, decry people that present information that's contrary to the conclusion you've drawn as those howling at the moon, then you're welcome to do that, too, because, you know, at this point. What are you really going to do with people that are not interested in thoughtful discussion on the topic? Uh, we Now we're going to have thoughtful discussion on the topic with Peggy Hamburg. She is a former FDA commissioner. She was FDA commissioner under President Obama, and she joins us now. Uh, commissioner Hamburg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Glad to have the opportunity. So, um, you know, uh, we're back here discussing uh, mask and vax mandates. Uh, let's just start with the schools, since that's where Kathy Hochul is focused. And, and, of course, every state now has to deal with the question of whether to include the COVID vaccine on the vaccination schedule for kids to attend school. 
Um, what do you uh, believe? What's your assessment of what we know at this point about the judiciousness of these recommendations that are being made by politicians like Hochul and those politicians who are suggesting that the COVID vaccine be mandatory in order to go to school? Well, you know, what I actually wanted to talk about um, was not the specifics of these policy concerns, which are very, very important and very confusing to individuals and families who want to protect themselves um, in the face of a serious disease. But, you know, what I really wanted to focus on was the opportunity to step back and look at the need for our nation to have a real biodefense strategy to protect us against biological threats, those we're grappling with today and those that um, can and will emerge in the future. We know that COVID-19 has been catastrophic. It has killed millions and millions of people around the world in this country. Every day in the United States, um, more than 350 people are dying of COVID still. We're now seeing the surge, as you mentioned, of respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, in kids taking a tremendous toll, filling our children's units in hospitals uh, with kids. We're seeing a, a resurgence of, of polio and, and measles. Uh, the the uh, emergence of monkeypox in this country um, recently, uh, and a lot of conditions exist to say that that we're going to have more serious threats, and we're not out of the woods on COVID yet. So, what can we do as communities and as a country, and frankly as a world, to actually prevent pandemics from happening in the future? And you know, we we well, have I'm a plan now that's been put. Well, well, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that and the prospective planning, but but it seems to me that it's difficult to have a, the conversation about prospective planning if we're doing things in present to combat something you agree is a, a continuing threat that are unproductive. So it seems to me there has to be an assessment of what we've done over the last uh, almost three years and what impact it's had, and what we and and who is taking away the right lessons from the impacts and who is not. Well, we absolutely have to uh, learn from experience, learn from science and data, and invest in programs and policies that will make a difference. Certainly with a variety of respiratory infections, we know that masks can make a difference. Are they an absolute um, preventive? Are they the, the magic bullet? No, they are not, but masks worn properly under the right conditions can make a difference and we all you know obviously want to do what we can to reduce um unnecessary preventions uh uh unnecessary illness uh and prevent disease but wait wait so are I you saying you know, are, that are you saying that we should wear masks again to prevent rsv from spreading because that's what i keep hearing from well, different certain you know, doctors I that didn't are on television. I'm on the program to, dis to discuss this, and I haven't looked at the study that you were mentioning. So, you know, I don't feel in a position uh, to to specifically comment on okay, on some of the things that have been raised. But I, I do think that we, we, we know that the right kinds of masks worn um, properly for certain kinds of respiratory infections um, makes a difference. Now, is, is as that, was noted... Is, there are always trade-offs in terms of the context of use mm -hmm. and, of course, proper use. 
Um, but I don't think that we should allow something like masks um, and other kinds of public health measures that can make a difference, have been demonstrated to make a difference, to become so politicized that we can't have thoughtful discussions. And I think you began you know, this discussion by noting the importance of thoughtful discussions, looking at evidence, and, and, and you know, really making decisions on that basis. You know, it seems to me that it, it, though, if if you can't, if you're, if we can't have, and I'm not suggesting we're not, but I mean, generally speaking, we're in a place where it's very difficult to have these discussions where there are people that draw different conclusions about masks and and vaccine mandates, and um, and and the the people that oppose some of these mandates, whether it's masks or vaxes, uh, are. Uh, ridiculed and shunted aside, and then then we're gonna then we're supposed to ignore that and turn around and listen to the same people tell us about what we should do to prevent pandemics in the future. You know the credibility of the public health community is key to getting people to listen. And right now, I would say I think most people would agree at this point the public the credibility the integrity of the public health community has been diminished greatly among a wide swath of the population because of the choices and the approach of implementing those choices that have been made over the last 3 years well i agree with you and i think that the public health community really needs to work very hard to to restore um trust and confidence of the public and policymakers that trust is something that you have to you know, earn every single day, and you have to earn it by really delivering to people on things that matter for them. In addition to having been FDA commissioner, I was New York City Health Commissioner, actually under both Mayor Dinkins and Mayor Giuliani, mm-hmm. um, and had the opportunity on the front line to understand the importance of clear communication, the importance of explaining what we know and what we don't know how that affects our decisions today, but what we're doing to get more information so that we can uh, continue to evolve our recommendations and continue to work with people and communities um, to make sure that we have the right programs in place, programs that make sense scientifically and will help to prevent or reduce uh, disease, but also programs that are, are workable in the context of people's daily life and their their needs. Um, so right. I think that this is an area that's absolutely essential. Public health community needs to step up and do a better job. And I think that at every level of government, um, this is important. And it's not just about government officials. It's about, um, you know, key leaders and communities joining with with public health um, in order to make so a real difference. What's the national biodefense strategy? Well, the National Biodefense Strategy is um, uh, an important update on um, a strategy that was actually put forward first in the Trump administration and reflects the fact that there are many gaps in our systems uh, to uh, detect and prevent and prepare and respond to um, serious biological threats, as well as the issues around how do you recover from a threat as it starts uh, to recede. And we know that COVID-19 is not a one-off. There have been serious catastrophic biological threats 
over the course of history. And for lots of reasons, there are going to be more going forward. So having seen the impact of COVID, having seen um, the the lives lost and the, the serious illness, the devastating impact on our economy and our our societal cohesion, and of course the impact around the world, uh, we should not hit the snooze button on this wake-up call. We should make sure that we're investing in ways that will better protect us for the future. And you look at the costs of COVID across all those dimensions and what it would cost to build a sensible program that really um, enables greater risk awareness and early detection, um, puts in place tools to prevent pandemics and bioincidents in the first place, uh, to, to really um, make sure that we've got the right programs and policies uh, to better respond, not just with government programs, but across um, public and private sectors, across many domains of activity. Um, and of course, you know, really making sure that, that from every level, from the local community to the national, that, that we uh, understand what the risks are and can mobilize in response to emerging threats. So with respect to this commission and this planning, what are one or two top priorities uh, that are in concrete things that we should do that, you know, next steps that are recommended, whether it's a particular approach or a program, something concrete that uh, we should focus our attention upon? Well, um, just just as background, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense was begun, um, uh, I think, 14 years ago um, to respond to the fact that these threats are real and they need to be addressed in a bipartisan way and they need to be addressed with the seriousness of purpose. Um, and that group put forward a, a blueprint for action which is very much reflected in the current um, planning uh, and activities. A couple of key areas uh, we need, of course, to strengthen our ability to, to rapidly uh, recognize an emerging threat. So stronger surveillance systems to, to know patterns of disease, um, what kinds of problems are emerging, whether it's you know, tracking what's happening in hospital emergency rooms, um, and uh, so, so what is that? Care is units that, is, or is that, what's in the wastewater? The the yeah okay. So the surveillance. I mean, that's that's an interesting topic area. So the surveillance piece of it. Does that mean um, communication infrastructure between local, state, federal? Does that mean um, actual you know sort of physical machinery that surveils in real time and has an alert system? Or you know, people trying to get their heads around what exactly it is that we can do. Yeah. That, Right. Well, it's it's a mix of things. It's um, sort of more traditional doctors reporting um, uh, unusual cases of disease or outbreaks of disease, you know, working with their local health department. It involves um, being able to uh, understand uh, other kinds of information in a community as well, like you probably heard about wastewater surveillance, where right. now people are looking at at that in order to see signs of uh, infection and trends 
in uh, infection by what microbes are in the wastewater. And um, that's proven very, very valuable as an early warning uh, system. Even things like knowing, you know, who making calls uh, with questions about flu symptoms or Googling um, uh, to see about flu symptoms can, can give you early indications of, of emerging flu in a community. Wait, so um, you're surveilling sales. what we do on Google? So if, if somebody Googles flu symptoms? No, no. There, no, there, there have been programs that have looked at, at ways that you can detect early um, when there's a problem in a, in a, com- a community of, of disease emerging. Um, so you're just talking about what types of, of uh, or, you know, people in communities reporting as well about unusual outbreaks of disease. So that's one area. Another area is investing more in the science so that we have better um, uh, diagnostics, better drugs, better vaccines um, that can, can make a difference, that can, can help um, prevent serious uh, disease, hospitalization, and death, but also, you know, tools that can, can, if you've been exposed, prevent you from going on to develop disease. And importantly, diagnostics, we all know how important it is to actually know, do you have COVID? Do you have flu? Because that matters in terms of how you interact with your, your family and loved ones and how you interact with the community more broadly and whether you can get um, access to treatments that you need that can make a difference for your health or the health of your family. She is Peggy Homburg. She's the former FDA commissioner, and as she mentioned, also former New York City public health commissioner under both mayors Dinkins and Giuliani. Peggy Homburg, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, you just heard Charles Thomas's closing argument for Darren Bailey. Now hear Darren Bailey's closing argument for Darren Bailey. This is his new spot. I get it. To many of you, I'm different. I'm a working farmer who speaks with a downstate twang and buys my suits off the rack. But like you, I feel that taxes are too high, our streets aren't safe, and our education system is failing our kids. And after back-to-back billionaire governors, it just isn't working for us. It's time we have a governor who understands families. I will put people first, not the elites. Let's fire Pritzker and take our state back. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. What do you think? I love it. I think that's great. That's what the message he needs to send right now. We know about crime in Chicago. We're living with it. Woke up this morning to, you know, your question of how much worse does it have to get? This cute little seven-year-old boy getting ready for bed, washing his hands, and he was shot because some thugs were having a shootout in the alley, and the stray bullet went through his home, hit him right in the abdomen. He went for emergency surgery. Uh, but was pronounced dead at one thirty this morning. Uh, well, that's uh, that should be the closing argument for Pritzker. And come February for Lightfoot, what they have done to the city oh. and the state 
and the lawlessness that they have unleashed. I mean, you can't deelect Kim Fox yet, or I'd include her. You you, you could deelect Tony Preckwinkle. I'd include her. She'd run against Bob Fioretti. She's the mentor to one Kim Fox. She's part and parcel of all this. Uh, in point of fact, when she first ran for Cook County Board President, she said that one of her goals was to reduce the population of the Cook County Jail. And she didn't say in the sense of, like, we need to reduce the incidence of violence so that fewer people are prosecuted and sent to jail for doing bad things. She just wants to get them out. Yeah. yeah. And now that's been codified into state law. And I, I, speaking of that, a little bit of a flashback here, because as we discussed yesterday, uh, Jelly Belly's continuing evolution on his purge law. Here's where we started. This is when he signed the bill, February 21st of last year, February 21st of 2021. And listen to how he characterized opponents of his purge law then. Opponents of this law don't want any change, don't believe there is injustice in the system, and are preying upon fear of change to lie and fearmonger in defense of the status quo. So uh, just uh, a little less than two years ago, all of the opponents of his purge law, which included 100 of the states, 102 county states attorneys, Democrats and Republicans alike, were fearmongers and liars. Deplorables. Fearmongers and liars. That's what he said. Now, with what most people who are paying attention understand about the purge law, Who's the fearmonger and the liar? Interesting, too, he went from fearmongers and liars to moving a little bit, saying we need to maybe change some of the language, you know, some of the verbiage so that people truly understand what it's going to do, but not suggesting it was going to do anything on the order of what prosecutors are suggesting it's going to do, which is release criminals and make it exceedingly difficult to prosecute people who commit violent crimes. But then he said that he that the this safety act is not going to release criminals oh, that are, are waiting for trial. But then he goes around and says this. Well, well no, blah, 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 blah. before okay. before what he said to Craig Wall at the debate, the last debate, he said it does not release violent criminals. Right. And if it does, we should amend it. <laughs> Wait a second. Which is it? Does it or doesn't it? And then he said this to Craig Wall. So let's explicitly put into the Safety Act with an amendment saying that we, we're not going to let anybody out, any of the violent criminals out on January 1. But I thought that wasn't going to be a part of it anyway. So he's just a hypocrite. Well, and he's trying to be a reasonable, I'll compromise, I'll make it explicit, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Here's the thing. Um, you don't get to amend a law by executive fiat that you've already signed into law. So if he was really serious about a discussion to change the Safety Act, then he would call for a special session, which he has not done. He would be saying, I'm reaching out to legislative leaders to discuss the parameters of a special session on this law. And he hasn't done that because he's just trying to placate you with empty rhetoric because that's what he does. Something else. Well, he's lying until the over the until the election's over. If if he wants to make it explicit in the law that violent criminals won't be released, then why do we need the law at all? 
because that's what we have now, except by choice in Cook County because of Kim Fox and Tony Preckwinkle and Tim Evans. They're doing it by choice. This makes it the law. The rest of the state operates under the approach that prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys in an adversarial process, obviously in consultation with the judge, make determinations, judge ultimately, on bail and who is detained, who is held over for trial, and who isn't. That's what's happening now. So if you're going to eliminate everything in the safety law, then why do we need the safety law? Just repeal it. Why is he saying that? Because he is being disingenuous. He is not going to do what he says he's going to do there. He cannot do it himself, and he doesn't have legislative support to do it. It's done. It was done when he signed it. The only path now is one through the courts and that case that was consolidated in Kankakee County to have a judge declare the law to be unconstitutional and two to get a new governor in there and a bunch of new legislators to narrow the margins that the Democrat socialists enjoy so that it will not be revisited if if you can get the courts to properly rule the law unconstitutional that's where we're actually at not this fairy tale land where I just issue a press release or I just say something and it magically happens. Today, Governor Spaulding is going to be at Morton West in Berwyn. I shall be attending if, I can, uh-huh. if they if they let me in. Morton West in Berwyn, where, as we mentioned yesterday, I'll mention again because we've got some new CPS numbers too. Morton West, twenty percent. Read at grade level, 10% do math at grade level. That's as of 2021. The graduation rate, 72%. 20% at grade level in English, 10% at grade level in math, 72% graduation rate. The Chicago Sun-Times, AFL-CIO, NPR Times. Chicago Public Schools graduation rate hits record high. Oh, they do this every year. C- oh of course God. they do, and right before an election. CPS leaders, 89% of last year's freshmen are on track to graduate. That means uh, that's how many freshmen are passing their core classes. 89% graduation rate we're tracking for. That's um, up from 80% last year, 77% five years ago. Isn't that great? Oh, I'm so happy. Uh huh. Am I going to have the party or are you? And then you look at high schools. Manly High School, 2% proficient in reading, 1% math. Douglas High School, 0 and 0. Uplift High School, 3 and 0. Hirsch High School, 1 and 0. Austin, CCA, 6 and 1. Tilden, 2 and 1. Mason, 11 and 8. Marshall, 2 and 1. Holmes, 16. uh, Holmes, 6 and 2. Sumner, 16 and 11. Crown, 5 and 6. Frazier Perspective, 38 and 19. Fanger, 2 and 0. Robinson, 28 and 16. Field, 11 and 7. Courtney, 22 and 14. Gale, 6 and 5. Air Force High School, 6 and 8. Morton, 11 and 7. Uh huh. Oh, and, and oh, by the way, system wide, system wide, 27% read at grade level, 24% do math at grade level, and they Got a 77% graduation rate five years ago to 80% tracking for 89%. I mean, do you understand the level of fraud that is being committed 
against number one, most importantly, these kids and their families, and number two, 12.5 million Illinoisans. And that fraud is going to be extended when Spalding appears at Morton West this morning. Everything is a fraud in this state, perpetrated by the same fraudsters. So you know Bernie Madoff is stealing your money, and you give him more money, right? Is that what you want to do? Because that's what we're on the cusp of doing. Just incredible. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Jeff Park Ridge. Hey, guys. So I'm uh, driving down 95th Street from the Dan Ryan West, and there's that median just before Beverly, and there's a ton of J.B. Pritzker oh, yeah. signs. And as you as they, as they kind of um, thin out, all of a sudden there's Bailey Trump signs. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, they, but pr- they're popping the up call. everywhere. Yeah, Pritzker's people are putting out Bailey Trump signs because you don't like Trump, so you shouldn't like Bailey, and it's a referendum on Trump, not a referendum on him. This isn't complicated. That's what he's doing. Alan Rockford. You know, Dan, what you're talking about is why Amendment 1 cannot be ratified. If it is, the teachers that you are speaking of are going to continue to poor performance but now be emboldened financially and beneficially with regards to larger contracts specifically. I mean, taxpayers need to wake up in the morning and say, what's my ROI for all the money that's being taken from me? And, you know, a simple example, you go to the store, you buy some steak, but you get home and there's no steak in the package. Are you going to be happy? So why are we happy about our tax dollars? being taken from us and there's no roi the roads are a shambles in winnebago county where i live and the 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 county and towns they have no answers for it oh well it's just expensive okay i don't know why that's an answer and we and thanks for the call in the highest state and local tax burden in the country and we just got 186 billion dollars in covid funny money that flowed through the state in the last 24 months so when all that goes away where do you think you're going to (laughs) be if you think it's bad now but the problem is nearly half the state doesn't think it's bad now. Deborah Arlington Heights. Good morning. Um, I'm in my 60s, I hate to say, and my husband is in his 70s. We're both still working full-time, and he works a part-time job as well. I have never in my entire life seen a bigger gaslight on a state and federal level as I am witnessing now. And we continue to work hard and pay taxes, and I don't know where it's all going. I, I just, it, it, it's appalling to me. It's appalling to me. I, I hope there's going to be a change because we can't continue to go on like this. Thanks, Deborah. Jim, Lake Geneva. Hey, guys. Appreciate your show. I was wondering if these graduate rates are so low, what are these teachers, what have they been doing since freshman year to be able to teach these kids? What possibly could be doing? Yeah, well, they're teaching them to be political activists. These kids are gone by third grade because they're so far behind. And then they just get further and further behind as they matriculate through the system. And the pandemic did not help. They well, just advanced them anyway, even though they couldn't read at a third grade level, they're in fourth grade. Yeah, of course. So what are they teaching them? They're teaching them about uh, uh, anal sex. I mean, I hate to be graphic, but that's, that's well, part of the are. curriculum. They're yeah. teaching them that uh, white people are oppressors and black people are victims. 
They're that's telling the curri- them that they, they might be not be the gender that they were born with. That's the curriculum. That's what they're learning. Bob Edison Park. Yeah, guys. You know, a lot brought up about the um, the purge law with the incarcerations and stuff like that. Here's my issue from what I understand. Even if they fix on paper the incarceration issue, what I've read, they're going to put police on such a liability track legally and financially. I don't care if you hold them in jail forever. You are not going to get anyone to put them in jail. And that's an issue that I really haven't heard addressed. Maybe you know a lot more about it. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, we have addressed this. Uh, it is um, it does defenestrate police. There's no question. No question about it with uh, uh, impossible judgment calls and uh, enhanced liability exposure. If you make the wrong split second decision, even if you made a reasonable split second decision. No, it's it's a this. Remember, this comes out of the defund the police movement in 2020 after the riots. That's the genesis of this purge law. And they've expanded it to model the state's prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial offices after how Kim Fox runs her office. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the that was a good model. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the shorthand on it. Yeah. Mike in Geneva. Yeah, you don't if, if you want to create a better system to review cases for those that are in jail, do that. Don't just let people go. And, and about the education thing, my daughter's a teacher out here in the suburbs. She's uh, and, and she sees it here. So I can't imagine what it's like in Chicago. You know, there are there are problems. They've dumbed down <clears throat> the curriculum and the, the, the grades and the progress is still worse. So it's, it's this doubling effect where you are losing them in grade school. They're, they're not even getting to the point of, of being the high school. They're already two and three grades behind by the time they get to eighth grade. Thanks, Mike. John, Libertyville. Good morning, Amy and Dan. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Dan, I'm glad you're doing well and you're back. I was on the verge of having my son's second grade class make you some get well soon cards. Um, <laughs> when he went golfing? So, <laughs> I thought he fell down the stairs or something. No, no, no. no, no, no. no he no. just. Oh, no, no, no. I heard I'm wrong. Too, Sorry. I, I'm too I agile for that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't fall. He was pushed. So the, reason, right. <laughs> the reason I'm calling is because so I've been, I'm supportive of Darren Bailey, but some I have some hesitations. I'm definitely not voting for Pritzker, but I remember in the primary he was against uh, banning CRT and the sexualization of children in schools via executive order uh then i was watching the second debate i thought he did a lot better in the second debate than in the first debate there was a question i thought that should have been a slam dunk it was regarding chemical castration of children uh, and sex changes and he completely deflected the question did not answer the question talked about um children getting abortions without their uh without parental consent and so what is his position, Dan? Do I have to take a deep dive to find out what it is on this one? No. I mean, I watched the debate for a yeah. whole hour. He, you know, he, uh, Thanks for the call, John. I mean, he's not the best candidate on his feet I've ever seen. Let me just say that. And he's not the best debater. Uh, neither is Spalding. But um, his position is clear. He's against the cultural and responsive teaching indoctrination, the train the trainer so they can indoctrinate the kids. He's against the whole trans, ag- trans agenda and and sexualization of kids' curriculum, same as DeSantis. That's where Bailey's at. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook. 
or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, we uh, brought you this uh, update when the numbers were released earlier in the week. Bill Malugan reporting for Fox News summarizes the situation at the border more succinctly than I can. So let's go to him. The numbers reveal there were more than 227,000 migrant encounters in September, the highest September in DHS history and the equivalent of two full capacity University of Michigan football stadiums. Fiscal year 2022 ended with nearly 2.4 million migrant encounters. That's equivalent to the population of Houston, and it's the highest fiscal year ever recorded, not including 600,000 known gotaways in the year. There were also 98 Border Patrol arrests of suspects on the FBI's terror watch list in fiscal year 2022. That's nearly quadruple the previous five fiscal years combined. And Brett, CBP sources tell Fox News a staggering 856 migrants died here at our southern border in fiscal year 2022. That is the highest number ever recorded. Yet another record shattered. For a reaction to those numbers and the situation at the border, please be joined again by Mark Morgan, former acting, acting director of Customs and Border Protection. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, again, Amy, thanks for having me. And if, if you don't mind, so so first of all, I couldn't do a better job than Bill Malugi did to really summarize this past fiscal year. But let me do a real quick summary on statistics for the first 20, 21 months of this administration. So first 21 months of this administration, about 4.3 million total encounters uh, at our southern border, about 1.1 million gotaways. Do you do the math? You're looking at anywhere between 5. Three to 5.5 million illegal aliens that have tried to to illegal in our border, and many of them were successful. Looks like we're uh, governors DeSantis and Abbott are going to need more buses and planes and trains and boats and automobiles. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I hope other governors will join. And look, this is and I know you talk about it, and, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir to a certain extent here, but that's why the midterms are very critical. That's why we need individuals at the United States Capitol that understand the importance of border security. They understand that border security is national security, and they also understand that illegal immigration is not a victimless crime, that it's not disconnected from border security. Dan, Amy, they're interconnected. Look, as illegal immigration goes up, especially to, 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 to the invasion levels that we have now, millions what happens is the result is limited resources are pulled off the front line. In some areas, 80 to 90 percent of border patrol resources are pulled off the front line to process the millions that are illegally entering. That literally leaves our border wide open, and that literally has handed operational control over to the cartels of our southern border. And what's the result? We have drugs pouring in killed Americans. We have criminals pouring in, including rapists, murderers, gang members, and, and aggravated felons, as well as potential the national security threats. Okay, That's so, the reality. So what's going to change if the House and the Senate, if Republicans take over the House and the Senate? Yeah, Amy, so that's the question. And look, look, I, I, I feel that, that I that this is not political for me. So I, I'm, I feel I'm very honest about both sides. 
And look, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm skeptical because let's remember, the Republicans, the first two years of the Trump administration, the Republicans had the White House, the House, and the Senate, and they failed to pass a single piece of border security legislation that would have prevented about 85% of what's happening. But what I am is I'm hopeful because this administration, I mean, they've advocated their constitutional responsibility. The crisis is the worst it's ever been. So I'm hoping, for example, if the Republicans take back the House, they've got an incredible power, the power of the purse, the budget. Look, if they could say, look, we're not passing the budget. We're, we're going to have the political strength and courage to even shut down the government until you reverse course and stop the bleeding and secure our borders. Um, I saw reports from the Department of Justice that something like one-fifth of all the prisoners in our federal prisons are illegal migrants. Yeah, Dan, look, this is another good point that we don't talk enough about. Everybody talks about the drugs, for example, right? Got it. There's a, a fentanyl epidemic. The leading cause of death I mean, 18 to 45 is fentanyl. But one thing they, they don't talk about in mainstream media is that 95% of fentanyl comes from the southwest border, number one. But let's talk about the criminals. Look, in the first 20 months of this administration, CBP and other law enforcement entities have arrested over 40,000 criminals, including 113 convicted murderers. Now, let's go back to the 1.1 million Godaway. That's what it means. Just think about the number of murderers and rapists and pedophiles and gang members that are among the 1.1 million that, that got away that now called the United States home. And let me give you another statistic to really drive this home. From, from 2011 to 2022, 261,000 illegal aliens committed 433,000 crimes, including 800 homicides, 800 kidnappings, and 5,000 sexual assaults. And wait for the kicker, that was only in the state of Texas alone. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's, it seemed with the angel moms that were so, uh, and yeah. dads that yeah. were profiled during the Trump years, the Kate Steinle case, and so many cases like that. We have cases uh, in Illinois that we've profiled too. You know, because you, you try to get behind beyond the statistics to the actual human beings and the families impacted. And and I think we've got uh, collectively people that are putting a, a, a spotlight on this issue. I think we've got people's attention and I think you have the majority of American support, which makes it all the more frustrating. You can't seem to get any action from D.C., regardless of who controls the Congress. Look, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that just like so many issues in this country, just like CRT and, 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 and you know, inflation and economy, I think people have also woken up with respect to the, to the border and, the, and they, they're understanding the, the results of illegal immigration. And I think, look, the majority of Americans, we're like, hey, we're, we're all about immigration. We're just right. about legal immigration, right? We support legal immigration. But look, the, the, the compassion that I believe has been hijacked when it comes to illegal immigration it, with all due respect, it's misguided. We cannot, as a nation, support illegal immigration just on the face of the loan that, 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 look, it's against the rule of all of our sovereignty. But we can't support illegal immigration because the cause and effect that the, the cartels exploit that, they gain operational control, drugs are pouring in, criminals and national security threats are coming in. We cannot support that. We've got to support those that are going to go back to Congress and understand the importance and do what they need to do to secure our border and protect this country. Well, we've had 3,000-plus, um, and they're calling them asylum seekers, and they keep saying they're not here illegally. So how do they get that label compared to other people? Yeah, Amy, that's a great point, too. Look, this administration is more about spin and changing the names to fit their narrative than really being honest with American people. I mean, look, you go to the website. Guess what's not on the website? The 1.1 million gotaways. Guess yeah, they're what saying there's 600,000, the not 1.1 million. 
Yeah, well, that's six hundred thousand just this fiscal year. The one point okay. one million is, is since it took over, but that's not anywhere on the website. That that's no. just great reporters like Bill Lugin and other to have sources that's getting that information. But they're not publicly putting it on the website. And guess what? Another number that Bill Malugian uh, uh, talked about that's not on the website. But this fiscal year alone, over eight hundred dead migrants on the southwest border. Yeah, that's right. You take the first twenty months, right? That that number is over thirteen hundred. And they also don't include the number of dead migrants that sheriff's departments along the border have found, or the number of migrants that died in Mexico, or the daring gap on their journey up here. You're never going to hear that from this administration. I, I mean, well, it's it's absolutely. And so, so when it comes to asylum seekers, look, they're trying to cover the fact that they illegally entered the United States. I don't care what they claimed afterwards. Their first act was an act of criminal behavior, and that is what swept under the carpet, and there's no consequences. You can illegally enter the, uh, the United States, and there's zero consequences. In fact, you're rewarded. You get released in the United States. You get free education, free health care, and a whole host of other financial benefits. That's the reality. Yeah, you know, we used to understand this sort of basic tenet of civilization that lawlessness is a loser for everyone, um, yep. including the people you think are benefiting from the lawlessness. It's just people that that are lawless themselves. I mean, people that are coming to this country because they want a better life. There, there's no benefit to them by the way that we operate our border, uh, because the death toll that you were talking about, the exposure to uh, cartels and human traffickers. Um, and and then then you live a life in the shadows rather than having a sensible immigration system where people can't, who, who are truly asylum seekers can can receive asylum here, where people who want a better life are queued up and we try and assimilate as many as quickly as we can. Maybe it, maybe because so many people in this country don't want to work, maybe even a guest worker program. Uh, for those who want to come here to work and build a better life for their families, I'm all for it. But you can't have any of those discussions if you don't establish the rule of law. Dan, look, both you guys, Dan and Amy, look, I'll come on your show at any time because you guys are very well informed. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. Every single one of your points. We cannot allow the first act of somebody to be an act of illegality. I mean, it goes against the very foundation elements of our constitution in this country. And again, it's so frustrating because I I have not talked to anybody that is for border security, you know, like another great preacher like Tom Holman, that we're not absolutely for legal immigration. And we're for we're for like, you know, reforms for legal immigration to try to make it more efficient and more effective. Right. We're all for that. But we cannot as a nation be for illegal immigration, which, again, has detrimental impacts. And look, your state right now, I promise your listeners right now, there are angel families in your state right now that died at the hands of an illegal criminal alien that should not be in here. There's there's criminals in your state right now that are being allowed to stay in this country because of this administration's policy. Secretary Marcus refuses to allow ICE to do their job to lawfully deport, deport criminal illegal aliens that are in this country. That's a fact that's not hyperbole. Look, and then, look, and then, and then we, yeah, and then we got a, we got a hundred people on the FBI terror watch list that entered this country illegally, and uh, how many? Who knows how many more that didn't get captured? And as we saw on nine eleven, it doesn't take a whole lot of people that intend to do this country harm to do this country great harm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, that's ninety eight uh, illegal aliens on the FBI's terror screening database just this fiscal year. 
So, so you, you add in the last fiscal year, and it's well beyond 100. And then I go back to the 1.1 million gotaways because all border resources, they're not on the front lines. There's nobody on the front lines because they're busy processing millions of illegal aliens. So my thing is, think about the potential terrorists that's already in here. There could be literally, and this isn't hyperbolic, there could be a terrorist cell in the United States right now planning the next terrorist attack. And, and, and we, we could potentially have no idea because – 1.1 million, by the way, that's known gotaways. If you talk to border trade agents, they'll say that known and unknown gotaways, that number could be exceeding 2 million. That's what we have right now with this administration's open border policy. And, and what you seems that what you have with the, the last uh, constituent group here we haven't discussed is the Border Patrol agents themselves. Yeah, I guess you don't need to defund Border Patrol just like you don't need to defund police if you don't put them in a position where they can do their jobs, and that's what we've done to both groups. That's exactly right, and they have also done it to ICE. I mean, you're spot on again. ICE, literally, as we've had the, 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 the shattered all records in our lifetime, since the history that we have data of the number of illegal aliens crossing our southwest border, the number of deportations conducted by ICE is the lowest it's ever been since ICE was created. I, I mean, they literally not only are they not allowed to do their job to deport criminal aliens, but they also, under this administration, they were forced to release at a minimum 14,000 criminal aliens that they already had in custody. It's, uh, the restrictions have basically neutered ICE. They can no longer do their job. Border Patrol is the same, just as you said. It's why both agencies have the lowest morale that they've had since their uh, organizations were created. He is Mark Morgan, at former acting director of Customs and Border Protection. Mark, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Dan, Amy, thank you for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. MSNBC's uh, Nicole Wallace wants us to bring in foreign governments to observe our elections because she's so concerned about the vast right-wing conspiracy. Hillary Clinton is back with a vast right-wing conspiracy conspiracy theory. Uh-huh. 3.0. This is what she's warning about. She's already looking past November 8th oh, to 2024. Yeah. Hello, Indivisibles. I'm here to highlight oh something God. that <laughs> is keeping me up at night. And I know this group really understands what I'm about to say. I know we're all focused on the 2022 midterm elections, and they are incredibly important. But we also have to look ahead because you know what? Our opponents certainly are. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And she prattles on for another 90 seconds Mm. talking about, she doesn't mention it by name, but she's talking about this North Carolina gerrymandering case that the Supreme Court has taken up to uh, try to whip her people into frenzy and generate some money for this uh, latest gambit indivisible that she's running. For a more on authoritarians saving our democracy for us, pleased to be joined by Emily B. Finley. She's the John and Daria Berry Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Princeton University and the author of The Ideology of Democratism. Emily Finley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> I should add, though, that I was the John and Daria Berry postdoctoral fellow last year. Um, oh, p- past tense. Okay. All right. Well, congratulations on yes. that. 
Yes. Um, so uh, you wrote this piece, uh, I guess it's borrowed from the thesis of your book, The Ideology of Democratism, uh, for The Wall Street Journal. Um, and the we're hearing all this, save our democracy, save our democracy. Everybody who disagrees with these is a threat to our democracy. Are all of these people that are running around saving our democracy for us uh, truly interested in preserving our representative republic in the in way the founders envisioned it, or is there something else afoot? Um, <clears throat> I argue that there is something very, very much else afoot going on. And when you hear the phrase um, that something is a threat to our democracy, you can be pretty sure that the person uttering the phrase is, poses the real threat to our democracy. Um, uh, the Wall Street Journal op-ed that I wrote, I don't even remember what it was precipitated by because every other day we're hearing something about <laughs> something being a threat to our democracy. And um, actually that was in reference to Joe Biden and his chilling speech with that very um, dark and uh, bizarre aesthetic behind him when he delivered it. And he said that the MAGA Republicans represented a threat to our democracy. And we just hear this phrase so often from so many different corners, in usually in reference to um, what, you know, a populist candidate who has been either elected or is supported by an electoral majority or plurality. Um, there's a large constituency behind these so-called authoritarian populist candidates. Um, and so how is it that these these people um, and these policies and parties that enjoy popular support could be threats to democracy? I argue that there's a pervasive ideology in the West right now that the elites um, are consciously or otherwise contributing to. And the ideology is truly an anti-democratic ideology that um, has its own normative vision of politics and reality. It has assumptions about human nature, um, gender, social organization built in, and these ideas that it has, that these elites are putting forth, it calls democracy. And anything that goes against it, it can consider anti-democratic. This is just Leninism with a fresh cone of paint, isn't it? This is the vanguard party. That's what uh, Hillary Clinton is yeah. talking about. Yeah, it has a lot in common with communism. And, and and so d develop their develop what you see as their vision for what they call democracy. Well, in my book, I I trace the lineage of this ideology back to Jean Jacques Rousseau, whose understanding of democracy has been formative in the West, and he puts forth this new vision of democracy that is not the ancient Athenian model of actual rule by the people, a majority majority rule. Rousseau argues that true democracy. Um, is represented by something called the general will, which is simply an ideal of democracy. And so uh, those in power in practice can write into that ideal whatever they want, and it can be considered democracy by those in power. Um, and Rousseau contrasts that general will with the mere will of all, which is just the aggregate majority. And so um, even if you have a, a majority of people who support a certain candidate or policy, our elites can consider that anti-democratic because it does not conform to this ideal understanding of democracy. And we can see, you know, what their preferences are 
um, in policies and what they are against. Just look at whatever the MAGA Republicans are for right now um, that poses such a threat to them. And that is, you know, they can consider that anti-democratic, even if a majority of Americans actually support those policies. How worse do you think it's going to get, though, if the Republicans take over, you know, for after the midterms in the House and the Senate? I'm sorry, what's the first part of that? Oh, I said, how, how much worse do you think it's going to get for Republicans and, you know, Trump supporters if we take over the House and Senate during, after the midterms? Oh, yeah, I think we're going to be hearing, you know, cries left and right about the, the threat to democracy, because that is, um, that's the, the battle cry right now for the left. Um, and it, it spans across the Atlantic. You know, this, this was um, when Maloney was elected in Italy. We heard the same thing about how she's a threat to democracy. You know, how could a democratically elected prime minister be a threat to democracy? And they, they you know, sustain this paradoxical understanding because they believe that they are the true arbiters of democracy. And so if, they're, if the Republicans gain heat, if there's a threat to their power, then they're going to cry all the more that this is a threat to democracy to try to whip the people um, into believing um, into believing that that's the case. That, that's the ruse they run, right? They, the one hand, they tell the people that they're in charge while they're subjugating them. But you've got to convince yeah. the people that they're actually still actually have the power as power and sovereignty is being stripped from them. Yeah, and you know the the scales I think fell from a lot of people's eyes during the pandemic, when we witnessed the rules for thee but not for me phenomenon. Um, in my own state of California, Gavin Newsom, he he just flagrantly violated his own lockdown rules. He kept his winery open in Napa while shutting down the others. Oh he was God. out at the French Laundry, one of the most expensive restaurants in the country while keeping everybody else in lockdown. And all of this, you know, was supposedly in the name of the greater good. And that's just one example of this um, mentality of these elites. And again, uh, prescient as he, as he continues to be, Alexis de Tocqueville, you cite him in your piece in the journal about where this ultimately goes if, it's, if more scales don't fall from more eyes. Yeah, Tocqueville predicts this um, soft despotism, as he calls it, but he doesn't see it um, turning into something like the, the hard totalitarianism. Obviously, this was, that um, phenomenon hadn't um, uh, occurred yet, but he doesn't predict something like a heavy-handed state coming down on the people. He predicts that the people will be somewhat complicit in their own tutelage, as he calls it, because... Um, of the, the the soft nature of the despotism and the uh, the ruling class using the language of democracy and equality and liberty to enslave the people, essentially. Well, your home state of California and our home state of Illinois are case studies in what you're describing, what de Tocqueville described, no question about it. She's Emily B. Finley, formerly the John and Daria Berry Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Princeton her book, The Ideology of Democratism. Emily Finley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. 
Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. 